Welcome to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a novelist and screenwriter known for his violent noir and transgressive drama. He's joining me today to discuss his recent work, Colony of Horrors. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Matthew Stokoe. Matthew, welcome to the show. Hi, Vince. Good to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 19th day of January 2024. I discovered your work through a bookstagram review and was immediately impressed by your writing style, even from just a few sample pages. I read your latest work, Colony of Horrors, and am amazed by the fearlessness of your subject matter and the boldness of the narrative. So I'm excited to have you on the show, and I'm eager to delve into the transgressive details of this incredibly dark yet redemptive story. I hope I can remember enough of it to answer your questions. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sure you will. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Well, so the book revolves around a sordid web of intrigue encompassing murder, rape, incest, kidnapping, and greed. It begins with a man named Tim whose sister Rebecca was recently murdered while she was at a vacation property writing a screenplay. Instead of living in the apartment his sister bequeathed to him, he is shacked up with his girlfriend Jocelyn, a sex addict who cheats on him by participating in random orgies. Now, Tim was once a successful screenwriter, whereas Jocelyn, who fancied herself as one, was not particularly skilled. And given the detailed discussions about screenwriting from the outset, including all of its minutiae, it's quite obvious that you are drawing on your personal experience as a screenwriter. And from the screenwriters I've interviewed, I understand that getting a movie made is a very challenging and often demoralizing process. Could you share your personal experience with screenwriting? Yes, sure. It sort of illuminates really also my pathway into writing novels. So I'd always kind of wanted to write, I think, but I didn't know how to do it. You know, I remember sitting down when I was 20 years old, bed sit in London, and um, you know, I'm going to write a book. And then just getting a page and going, well, what the fuck do you do now? So... Um, <laughs> I went back to university a bit later and uh, I was doing this degree and I did two years of it and I was getting burned out. So I took a year off. And during that year, I did an evening course, half an evening course of screenwriting. This is in London. And um, 
I didn't go back for the second term because, I mean, I'd say things in the class and they're just like, you know, they go down like a lead balloon and <laughs> I don't know what it was. It's like, what's the most important thing about, you know, a scene in a film? And I was like, oh, well, I don't know, the atmosphere that you create, the mise-en-scene and the, all that sort of stuff. Oh, no, 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 no. It must move forward. That's the most important thing. <laughs> okay. So I had that little bit of um, screenwriting experience, right? And while I was doing that, very shortly after doing that, I had a friend called Simon Mackey, who at the time had a weekly comic strip in a pretty big underground uh, magazine. I've forgotten the name of it now, but it was a London-based, so it had good readership and all that. He had two characters called Flick and Jube, and um, he's done tons of comics around these two characters. But as I had done this so-called screenwriting course... He said, okay, let's write a screenplay together. So I'm like, okay, all right, that's a good place to start, you know, and somebody to bounce ideas off as well. So we sat down and wrote this screenplay called Flick and Tube, and it was a full-length screenplay, 120 pages, 110 pages. Sent it off to an agent in America. You know, these were the days where you posted stuff off still, and um, who knows, maybe it just got slung in a garage out the back because you know, there were so many shonky agents, you know, receiving things, probably so many, uh, probably are still. And needless to say, it didn't go anywhere. And uh, I straight away wrote another one by myself called Lost and Return. And same thing happened. And I realized that screenwriting was something that really took a lot to master that unlike Diablo Cody or whatever, you know, most people don't write a screenplay that works at the first attempt. And it has a lot of rules, screenwriting, even if you're going to do something transgressive or, you know, your content's going to be left to center or whatever. If you want it to be shown in cinemas or on TV now, there's a lot of points you've got to hit all the way along that journey kind of thing. And there's lots and lots of books written about this, as anyone who's delved into screenwriting will know. So those two feature-length things, they were my intro and my experience with screenwriting. I did a bit more later, which I'll touch on, but what happened in doing those two screenplays, and although they never went anywhere, was it's a very good education on structure. And it's more than you know, anything else, screenplays rely very, very heavily on structure. So when you practice screenwriting, you're getting a really great grounding in structure, I think. And that's what I took away from that experience. And a bit later on, when I was living in New Zealand, the New Zealand Film Commission, they used to give out grants for short films. So I wrote one called Rock. It was a beautiful 10-minute short story about a kid who thinks he's a rock. And it's quite a nice visual in the um, short story of this kid who caked in mud. But the director completely fucked it. I mean, I don't know where these guys come from or why they think they need to change stuff when they've already gone, hey, this is a great script. We'll fund this. Let's just get a director on board. So, I mean, fuck, for a year, I rewrote this 10-page script with one director after another. Anyway, it got made, and they still show it in New Zealand, and I think you can even see it on YouTube. It's just called Rock. And so that actually did get made. But the other one, which had a better outcome, was a screenplay I did with a guy called Paul Kwiatkowski called Dog. And 
Paul had read Cows, and Paul's a very clever, very artistic guy. He actually does the Wake Island podcast. I don't know if you've heard of it. And he said, hey, will you write me a screenplay? I think he was not long out of um, art school or film school. And I said, yeah, you know, he was actually stumping up some money, which is rare in, in this world of filmmaking. <laughs> and so I wrote him this uh, film called Dog. It was about 25 minutes long. And he went out and shot it. And he did a magnificent job on it. It's really gritty. It's really weird. And there's some stuff that just sort of came out of his process with the actors at the end of it, which I didn't even write, which is just, I think, sublime. I don't know sure how easy it is to find dog anymore on uh, youtube or anything but that really was the end anyway of the screenwriting for me that's what i can tell you i've done as a screenwriter yeah i can see where uh there's quite a lot of detail uh, about the screenwriting process and within the book the next character in the story that we come to is a man named Denning, whose wife Clara had disappeared, leaving him with his 18-year-old daughter, Peta, I'm assuming is how it's pronounced? Yeah, I think you're probably right, but I always say Peta in my head. <laughs> I, okay. I had once to go for Peta, so, you know, but it, yeah, you would think it was Peter, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, so he struggles with the fact that his daughter is dating someone because after his wife's disappearance, he was so desperate to reconnect with her that he found a connection to Peta, who was 18 at the time. He felt she was a connection to his wife because she shared his wife's DNA, leading to a brief consensual incestuous affair. Now, the uh, topic of incest is indeed taboo and transgressive, but... Subjects like that are not unfamiliar in mainstream literature, as seen in the works of authors like Brett Easton Ellis and Vladimir Nabokov. And so when it comes to writing, what draws you to push the envelope, as it were? Well, in the early days, as I say, in the first couple of novels, I was, you know, a lot younger, and um, I don't think I was a really angry young man, but... It used to piss me off that the stuff I was reading then glossed over things like murders and rapes and, well, I didn't even mention incest you know, a lot of the time. Yeah, of course it's out there. It just didn't, wasn't my orbit, right? So when I sat down to write, particularly the first two novels, which are much more explicit, I just thought, you know, I'm going to show you guys what it's really like to kill somebody. It was really <laughs> like when somebody gets shot, you know, and uh, and also, hey, you know, there are people in our society who are not represented in, in these books generally. Like now we all know it's a terrible thing, right? If daddy's doing his little daughter and stuff like that. But you can do quite a bit of research on this and find that there are a lot of very sad, very poignant stories about brothers and sisters who really were in love with each other. Yeah, of an age to make an informed decision and had miserable lives because society doesn't allow it. And so as far as incest goes, there was something like that driving it to me because, you know, I think literature should end up representing everybody almost. And there was no real incest that wasn't saying, hey, this is fucking terrible and you must be taken out and shot because you've committed incest with your... 21 year old sister. And, um, so 
I wanted to do that. But also, strangely, there was a book called Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews. Mm-hmm. And that is <laughs> heavily reliant on incest, brother and sister incest. These kids are trapped in an attic. They can't get out. So they grow up in an attic. And he even actually almost rapes her at the beginning. So it's not even consensual right at the beginning. And they have a kid eventually. But the reason I'm mentioning this is to show the sort of the dichotomy or the hypocrisy of the publishing world is that people go, oh my God, Matthew Stoker and his incest, and that's, oh, yuck, yuck, yuck. Well, V.C. Andrews, Flowers in the Attic, sold 40 million copies, you know, uh-huh. and, you know, screwing your brother became a topic of conversation amongst teenage girls kind of thing. <laughs> so I guess I just wanted to shine a light on that. And it is almost the last taboo. I mean, you know, back... 50, 60 years ago, writing about homosexuals, that was, oh, that was really taboo kind of thing. And then you could do explicit killings. Yeah, it's not really taboo, but, you know, it's yucky. But incest hadn't been used a lot. And I just thought I'll use it. And then I realized I was quickly skimming through the colony last night after you got in touch with me, and I realized how much incest there is in it. Um <laughs> But it's also a great marker to show that someone's broken and someone's as living outside of society. You know, whether that's actually for their incest or not, it immediately tells the reader, well, this guy's not having roast dinner on Sundays with a nice extended family and that he's kind of fucked up and broken and he's living on the edge. So Peta is dating a man named Kid, who is a porn star turned movie producer, who's attempting to obtain financing for a movie that's going to be directed by a woman named Chick, who has one minor directorial role to her credit. And the film is going to star a slightly washed up actress named Dolores Fuentes. And the head of the company called GHQ is a man named Michael Stark, who has no good reason to give him this financing, but does when he's made privy to kids' ownership of an old reel of film with something very valuable on it. So this is the beginning of a very complex web of intrigue that you weave throughout the story. And I was curious... Are you making these connections as you write? Are you using a meticulous outline or are you relying on rewrites and editing? An outline. <laughs> After I finished Empty Mile, you know, I went to another book straight away. And um, I was casting about for ideas and Colony started off very, very differently than what it became. I remember I was trying to do something about the stuff called telomerase, which stops the ends of your chromosomes fraying and so keeps you young or something. I don't know. It's some crazy (laughs) stuff. But I spent about two years figuring out the story. So it wasn't an easy thing to do. I mean, I moved countries in that time and, you know, I had life to deal with. But I think I got about 45 pages of outline. And I remember saying to myself, Jesus, you got to start writing the fucking story. You've got to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out the outline. (laughs) Because when you sit down to do an outline, you've got a blank piece of paper and your computer and you're like, okay, what? And then what next? And then what next? And what next? And what's next? And you're not in the same creative space as you are when you're actually writing the story. At least I'm not. 
And it's almost as though you're outside trying to look in to the story. And that can make it very laborious and very time consuming for me, again, anyway, to get a whole story plotted out. So, yes, I spent a lot of time plotting it, but about two thirds of the way through the story, I stopped. A, because of time constraints, and also B, because when I do write an outline for a novel, I always like to leave it unfinished so that as you write, the ending can reveal itself kind of thing. So just to get back to the point of sort of outline V's actually writing, when you write, you have a lot of inspiration and a lot of ideas will come to you when you're actually writing that don't come to you when you're actually thinking, ah, what's happening next? What's happening next? Come on. <laughs> Motherfucker, tell me the next step. And um, <laughs> when you write, though, you just get these things going off in your head, ping, 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 you know. And um, the difficulty is, of course, weeding out the wheat from the chaff or whatever when you do that. So, yes, to answer your question, I did a lot of complex plotting. So it's the first novel that I've done that's told sort of from multi-character viewpoints. It always really follows Tim and the story that you're getting is always to support Tim's story. You'll open a chapter and it'll be from Laura's Fuentes' point of view or Sean's point of view, da-da-da, like that. So it was going to be something much more simple. I wanted to do an incestuous love affair story, but it morphed into this massively complex crime story, Hollywood you know, murder story. <laughs> and you know, it was tough work, but I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the end result a lot because, you know, if you ask me, oh, what are you strong at as a writer? I'm good at style. You know, I'm good at writing scenes and stuff like that. But the structure is really difficult. And um, because this is such a highly structured book, I was very pleased when I got to the end of it and that I had something that was so <laughs> complex, told from so many points of view. And yeah. it works, you know, so, so yeah. Does, I guess, outlining such a complex web of, you know, intrigue and deceit, does it come easier to you having had that previous experience as a screenwriter? Um, well, let's say I'm more aware of what it should contain. Mm -hmm. I don't think it comes any easier ever. In fact, I, sometimes I think writing just gets harder and harder and harder. Mm. I didn't outline cows, but I did outline all the other three books. And, you know, Stephen King says he never outlines anything and he only ever outlined one book. And Michael Connolly says the same thing. I, you know, he said, I only ever outlined one book and that was the book on which I had to do the most rewrites of any of my books. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know how Connolly does it because if you read his stuff, especially the courtroom stuff it's very structured and it's very cleverly timelined i mean i know he's yeah. not transgressive and all that but it just something i read occasionally no, I, uh, I read Connolly. <laughs> uh, yeah good okay well then i'll reveal i've read almost everything he's written i stopped reading a few years <laughs> ago but he's, they're such fun to read you know and they rock i'm not on. some artsy fartsy like oh no i only read the <laughs> okay. dark shit I, <laughs> yeah 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 okay that's great so yes, some authors obviously do it and some don't. I remember thinking after I'd done Cows and that took me a year, start to finish, and I didn't even know what I was going to write when I began. And 
I would go out walking, trying to figure out what the hell was going to happen next. You know, I'd get to a point and I'd get stuck and I'd be like, what can I do? What's going to happen? And, you know, I'd always think of something. But I remember when I finished that, I thought, mm, you know what? And next time I do this, I'm going to have an outline to follow. And mm -hmm. if you can get the outline, it's very reassuring, you know. And the other thing is, you're not going to follow that outline, mm -hmm. you know, not 100%, maybe not even more than 50%. And you're going to add stuff to it and you'll delete stuff from it. But it gives you this pathway to start on. And I think it's very reassuring when you start writing a book. Yeah. Keeps you from writing yourself into a corner? Well, particularly if you're going to do a sort of mystery-ish type thing or a complex type thing, everything's got to be set up. Now, you know, you said, mm -hmm. oh, did I go back and, you know, edit it and re-engineer it? And I guess some people do that, you know. I don't. I think that's a bit of cheating, you know, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> got I'm not saying I haven't gone back and, you know, changed a lot of stuff that I've written, but you know, I kind of like to have the thought at least that, okay, this kind of thing is at least my guide way through that and I won't re-engineer it too much. Mm. So, yeah, like I say, I've done it for the last three books and it's been very helpful. But it's also because I'm a very slow writer, it's um, very time-consuming for me. And I also started to question the efficiency of it because, you know, your subconscious is, who is that? I read a nice quote the, the other day. The subconsciousness is the writer and the conscious mind is the editor or something like that. Mm. And, you know, that's true. I think novels are written in the subconscious and the subconscious allows you this stream of information and then you, it's up to your conscious mind, put it together. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so trying to force that to happen, doing an outline can sometimes take a very long time and you miss out on some of the real inspirational flashes that you get when you're actually writing. Hmm. Well, circling back to the book, Tim eventually goes back to the apartment that his sister left him. And like Denning and his daughter, he had an incestuous relationship with his sister and began to watch an old video she made of her and others having sex. And Denning and Tim eventually cross paths, which gives them a rare opportunity to commiserate. What is this meant to accomplish for the story arc and or the evolution of both of their characters? Yes, it's a good question. I wanted them to have some sort of common ground in that they would both be damaged people or you could say, you know, outsiders in the sort of literature, non-culture. And I wanted them to be able to understand each other. And I also wanted it to be a device that enabled a very quick uh, level of trust to be established between them. Uh, because, you know, hey, I know this thing about you, you know this thing about me, okay? Mm -hmm. Perhaps we can trust each other. I didn't really want to steer myself into this place where, oh, there was this whole ring of incestuous people and they all had this <laughs> dirty, horrible secret and, and they were a club. You know, T-shirts and all the rest yeah. of it. But, um, <laughs> you know, look, it is a great question. And I have been called out on it before. Not really called out on it, but, you know, it's the reason that is there too much incest in there? Is it too much of a coincidence that both of these guys have experienced it? Um, 
And going back to what I was saying about the genesis of colony, my thought for it was that it would be an incestuous love affair, not this horrible, terrible thing, but a, a very sad story about two kids who weren't minors, who were adults, consensual, and they would just happen to be in love with each other. So I think perhaps that initial thought about the book found its way into Colony, perhaps a little bit too much, maybe not. And, you know, there was a study done across some universities now asking the students, how many of you have had a sexual interaction with a sibling? Well, 40% of them uh, reported yes. I mean, so I'm not espousing it, but it's something that happens. And it often happens, you know, when kids are experimenting and trying to figure out who they are sexually and things like that. Not kids, you know, older youths. So for me, I don't care that, you know, both of them have some incest in their background. And you have to see that in both cases, it arises out of this immense sadness. For Denning, it's the loss of his wife. And for Tim, it's the loss of his sister, really. He's not with his sister, makes this failed attempt at having a sexual relationship with her. It doesn't work out because she sees that he's getting fucked up by it all. She's much more level-headed. So while there's nothing coercive about it, in both of the situations, I see it as a very sad thing. And I wanted the two characters to share that sadness and the mechanical stuff that I've just outlined before. Yeah, I understand coming from a point of sadness, the loss of his wife. And I can't remember, obviously, he lost his sister. I mean, I hope I'm not giving away too integral of a spoiler by saying his <laughs> sister was murdered. If I, if I am, I'll cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we, but, um, we, I think we're going to have to touch on that anyway. <laughs> yeah. Did he feel a sense of loss of her before that? I'm trying to remember. She. Yeah. You're very astute. Yes. So what did he feel? He was basically a failed screenwriter. At least he interpreted it as such. And she went and became a very successful screenwriter and lived a very separate life. He had been, backstory, he had been in love with her, you know, as a younger, when they were together, perhaps as the family unit. There had been some feelings there as they uh, become adults and they separate and they live their separate lives. He's not with her. So uh, yeah. um, to that extent, yes. But you're right. It's not like this big catastrophic loss of his sister. It's just that he doesn't have her as you would if you were living in the house together with your sister kind of thing, particularly because of the difference between their careers as well, the circles they move in, yeah. the difference in those. Well, two of the darkest characters in the book are actually individuals I feel sorry for. Their names are Jeffrey and Allie, twin brother and sister who were systematically abused as children after their parents died when they were 12 years old. They turned into rapists to cope with their own sexual abuse, engaging in a strange ritual they believed would expel the darkness within themselves and allow them to heal. And even though they are absolute monsters, you give them a history of having suffered horrific abuse themselves and make their terrible actions specifically targeted at their own healing. 
What feelings were you attempting to evoke in the reader with this complex backstory? Sadness, in a word, I think. You know, you know I always like to think like uh, somebody might read some of these passages and start crying, you know, because it's cut so deeply. And oh, it's a lovely quote from a French writer, an old French writer, in a literary salon, and a woman comes up to him and says, Oh, monsieur, I loved your book. I wept when I read it. And he said, As you should have, madame, I wept when I wrote it. You know, and so it's like, <laughs> um, I approached it from that sort of point of view. I was aware that these characters could just be like little psychotic wind up toys, you know, and have all the depth of that. And I didn't want that. And my other thing about like, hey, how to write a character is you got to love them, right? Even if they're the worst character, the worst things in your book, you've got to find something to love about them. Otherwise, you can't write them very well. And so for me, dealing with these sort of psychos and already aware that we have a lot of weight to carry in the novel because of the incest and because of everything else that's going to happen in it, I had to give them dimensionality and they had to be sad and they had to have a reason for what they were doing. I really don't like things like dream sequences in movies generally because like anything can happen. There's no cause and effect. You know what I mean? And also like, it's not very clever to say, Oh, well, these guys are killers because they're mad. You know, it's, it's not <laughs> enough. So mm. I wanted to give them this backstory. It allowed me at the same time to talk a little bit about Hollywood, old Hollywood. Their grandfather is a Hollywood producer. He's the one who abuses them and the owners of Raintree, the house where they live going back, where, you know, it was owned by a silent movie star. It was nice to be able to weave that in. Yeah, I think it was just a consciousness of wanting to make them human, even though they perform inhuman acts. And it's also going back to the thing about love that I was talking about. It's also an expression of love there as well, because Ali isn't off the rails like Jeffrey is. And she knows he is so fucked up that he has to have somebody to care for him. And so there's that love from her for him, I think, coming through there too. Yeah, definitely. Well, the character of Chick is an interesting character. She's... Blonde, aggressive, drives yep. a Triumph Bruxton motorcycle, and wears a leather yep. catsuit with SWAT boots. She also doesn't bathe very often, so there's a lot of reference to a salt ring around her crotch <laughs> from sweating on the bike. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, she hates live-action Hollywood blockbusters believing they're garbage that ruins Hollywood. Instead, she prefers art house flicks with depth and the exploration of the human condition. And the odd thing is that I can see her character being kind of, you know, not with her behavior, but her, I guess, like the visual aesthetic of her kind of being part of an action movie, given the motorcycle, the cat suit, the arson, casual sex. So I was wondering what the reason for this apparent contradiction in her I guess, outward character traits and, and preferences. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting point. I haven't heard it before. And you're right. You know, like, yeah, she's got this flashy motorcycle. She's burning billboards and 
performing these actions that you might see in a dumbass action movie. But um, mm-hmm. that's really never crossed my mind. You know, she is as she is. She's a maverick. You know, she's uh, an iconoclast. I think she even says stuff to the effect, you know, she wants to tear down Hollywood and rebuild it and stuff all this <laughs> garbage that they keep foisting on us. Mm-hmm. I think maybe, yeah, she does look like, you know, she could be a character in an action movie, but everything about her, all her thoughts and her actions kind of thing, they're not. They're the antithesis of that kind of thing. But, I mean, it's also nice to have that sort of crossover to play with that. I'm pleased you've mentioned it because I'd never drawn that parallel before. I just saw her as this, like, really wild, slightly unhinged, chick you know do you call girls chicks in america i mean it's very australian to call a woman a chick it's it's not really derogatory but it's um yeah i did when i was younger but i'm in my 40s now oh yeah (laughs) that's right you know i haven't Uh, absolutely yeah yeah it's a young person's thing and i just loved the word anyway so i thought it was just a cool thing to give a, a name that embodied this youthful rebellious energy as well. And my wife was really pissed off with me about this salt ring around the crotch. Because <laughs> she's reading it. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, cash suit, you know, motorbikes. And she says, yeah, yeah. And she goes, oh, what the fuck is this? You know, why should you have a fucking salt ring around the crotch? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, good question, you know. <laughs> and I think I even took it out at one point, but I'm glad I put it back in. It's just one more thing to say, like, chicks just say, fuck you. I don't care. You know, I don't yeah. care what I look like for you guys. And I'm not going to kowtow to your kind of standards of personal hygiene or anything. <laughs> um, yeah. So, look, I can't tell you that there was some very clever parallel or dichotomy between her appearance and, you know, action movies and non-action movies. It's just the way I saw her, you know, just wild mm. and tearing around on a bike. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chick ends up befriending Tim and has an old Bonneville that she used to ride before upgrading to the Thruxton. She lets Tim ride the Bonneville instead of the Vespa that he was riding And as dangerous as she lived, she seemed to bring out a lot of good in Tim. He stopped drinking, which caused him to lose weight, and he started to write again. So is there any symbolism in Chick's upgrade to the higher-performance Thruxton and her decision to bring Tim up from his lower-performance Vespa to the high-performance Bonneville, which is where Chick began? Yes, very definitely. I mean, I like Vespas. I've had one in the past and they're lovely to scoot around town on. But, you know, <laughs> as Chick says, it doesn't exactly scream cock, you know. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> so I definitely wanted, you know, some symbolism in there or some illustration in there that through her, he was like, let's say, Failure and drinking had kind of emasculated him. Mm. And, you know, she was bringing him back into being strong, healthy, powerful, a man. And, yes, jumping from a Vespa to a Bonneville, I thought that was a very good (laughs) sort of image for that. And, you know, she she went to the Thruxton because it was – kind of lighter to handle and because it's not as traditional as the Bonneville and, you know, they've been around for a long time. So I just saw her more on this 
sort of more athletic, more maneuverable, zippy bike kind of thing. Well, what is the uh, emphasis on Triumph motorcycles? Well, I'm English by birth, and we emigrated to Australia when I was about six. And after I finished high school there, I went back to England for 15 years. So, you know, those are really formative years, like when you're 19 and you're finding your own way in the world. You know, there's nobody in England that I could go to for any sort of help at all. So you're finding your own way in the world and you go through a lot of experiences. So there's a big part of me that, you know, feels English even though I technically I've lived New Zealand, Australia and England. So, you know, if you ask me, you know, what nationality are you? I've almost 70% of the time say Australian, but there's that big part of very Englishness in me. So I always loved Triumph Bonnevilles, even before I started riding bikes. You know, I just love the look of them. They don't carry the baggage that Harley Davidson's do. Like, you know, it's a lot of stuff with Harleys and American bikes, like, biker gangs, and then the sort of negative connotations of the weekend riders, you know. I wanted them to be very separate. I didn't want any hint of belonging to a motorcycle gang, like an outlaw motorcycle gang, as we call them over here. But the other thing, importantly, is that I wanted them both to be outsiders, obviously. And I thought in an American menu, triumphs would be more separate not so much the norm as a Harley or an Indian or something else would be. Really, I suppose if I'm being truthful, I just like those two bikes a lot better <laughs> than, than almost any <laughs> other bike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I drove a motorcycle and... Yeah, what did you have? <laughs> I had a Honda Shadow, which is a, it's a cruiser. I think it was 1100 cc. And oh, yeah, okay. It wasn't chain driven, it was shaft driven. Oh, yeah. And wow, I yeah, cool. loved it. Like it had a carburetor too. It wasn't fuel injected. So you <laughs> oh, had to yeah. choke it to start it up and just lay on it. And oh, yeah. that was my only transportation for about three years until I uh, right. laid it down. Oh. But um, I remember it was black with a uh, gray ghost flames. Oh, man. I loved the look of it. Yeah. Yeah. Were you injured? Yeah, I broke my collarbone and got a compression fracture in my spine, probably, oh, oh, what is it, L5, I think? I didn't even realize that I got x-rayed, but it didn't show up on the x-ray. I didn't find out until recently that I had an old compression fracture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Whoa. Did you stop riding then? Was that when you stopped? Yeah. I couldn't drive a motorcycle after that because I was healing up, so I had yeah. to immediately get some sort of transportation, so I just never ended up buying a motorcycle again. Yeah. So. Okay, cool. I'm glad you survived, man. I'm petrified of, um, yeah, yeah, falling over. Yeah, it helps if you're wearing a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you guys have that over there, don't you? You can ride without a helmet in some states, but yeah. oh, fuck, I'd never get on. I'd be, uh, no, I would just feel like, here's the target. Here's the, you know, come and hit my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you were even yep. luckier then. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's good. Okay, cool. More motorcycle questions? Have you got any? No. Did I answer no, it? No, no, I, okay. I was just curious about that. Well, Tim has a friend named Sean who is a junkie. And it's kind of odd that Tim, who only drinks, spends time with Sean, who only shoots heroin. 
And it's even more humorous when Sean, while sticking a needle in his arm, gives Tim life advice like the need to break up with his <laughs> girlfriend. So <laughs> Sean's role in giving life advice while actively using heroin presents a, a complex character. And I was wondering, like, what message were you trying to convey through this contradiction? Oh, I didn't see it as a contradiction. Basically, they'd become friends. I think they'd become friends before Tim was aware that Sean was using heroin. But I didn't see it as any impediment to that. Tim was not going to be a character who was going to spiral down an opiate addiction path. He sort of goes, oh, cool, I've got some Oxycontin <laughs> when he first meets Denning, right? But, you know, he doesn't do very much with it, unlike Denning and Sean, who both goblet like candy. But I didn't see a problem of having a guy who's drinking too much wine every night, having a friend, talking to a friend as a friend who is a junkie, <laughs> you know. Junkies yeah. love to babble, you know, if they're in a nice... <laughs> sort of comfortable place and you can read more into it as well like you know even though they both had different substances of choice they were still friends you know they had enough between them to be friends didn't get in the way and it's funny like you say because they're both critical of each other as well in that respect you know tim makes a couple of jibes at, you know at sean's use of smack and like you know hey yeah, who are you to tell me this sort of thing? And, you know, you know, you're skinny and you don't look like James Dean anymore and stuff like that. At least he's thinking that. <laughs> and Sean's like, hey, man, you're getting fat. You know, you don't, you don't write anymore and you're getting fat. And so they, they, they have this nice little badinage thing going on. Again, you know, why is Sean a junkie? Again, I wanted to write about outsiders. I wanted to write about people who'd been chewed up and spat out by the Hollywood machine, which Sean kind of has, but his heartbreak is more, I think, related to Dolores Fuentes, as we find out later in the book. And so I didn't have a problem with it. I just thought, that's fine. You know, some people won't touch smack and some people will drink themselves to death and sometimes <laughs> never the twain will meet or whatever they say, you know. Yeah, the Hollywood machine, as you referred to it, is known for scandal, darkness, and depravity. And one of my favorite books is Hollywood Babylon by Kenneth Anger. <laughs> and I was wondering, have you read that book or other books about the scandals from the golden age of Hollywood? And were these scandals in any way an inspiration for your book? I have read Kenneth Angus' book, yeah, definitely, Hollywood Babylon. And I think even the other one he put on out afterwards trying to capitalize on that, Babylon mm. 2 or whatever. You know, when I first read them, I uh, didn't know as much as I do today. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, I loved it. It was so <laughs> much dirt and so much seed uh, dirt, you know. Yeah, like <laughs> just juicy gossip. But a lot of it was bullshit. You know, he's been roundly trounced and criticized for writing just complete lies basically so i'm not saying everything in hollywood babylon's lie but um you have to take it with a great big pinch of salt what he wrote but still a great fun read very strange guy but yes to answer your question yes a ton of reading about that stuff it used to fascinate me well it still does fascinate me i remember how it first happened as well 
I always used to love movies. As an older teen in the early 20s, I never used to watch TV shows, but I loved movies. I used to like old movies too. And I was in England at one point. I was living there and I went to this place called the Electric Cinema, which was the first cinema in London to project film with an electric bulb rather than a gas bulb. And it wasn't that old, by the way. It was just that's what the <laughs> theater was still called. And um, they were showing The Big Sleep, Raymond Chandler's Big Sleep. Right, with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Do you know that movie? One of the I know staples. of it. I've never seen it. Okay. So it's one of the, the staples of film noir. And I saw that movie and I thought, oh, wow. It was made in 39, I think, released in 41. Mm. Whatever, I don't know. So it's of 30s and 40s Hollywood. Hollywood's not really per se mentioned in that film, I think. But Bogart's in it and Lauren Bacall, you know. So... It was from that moment I got an omnibus edition of all his work and I read all of his books and then all of his stories. And from there, segued into a real obsession with Southern California slash Hollywood in the 30s and 40s and maybe back to the 20s too. So I did then do a lot of reading about that whole era. You know, I'm not so much interested in Film stars, although they can be very interesting too, in the, especially the older ones, you know, the 20s and 30s. But I was very interested in how the business came into being, how they escaped the Edison patent sort of police and how Hollywood grew and how California grew. What would it have been like to be like in that community, that filmmaking community or a private eye community, you know, back in 1935, you know, 1940? That really interested me, particularly because, you know, California history, I suppose like a lot of places, you know, is fraught with all this corruption, like stealing the water from the San Fernando Valley and, you know, just <laughs> getting rid of trams so that they could have buses so that the tire manufacturer could make millions of dollars supplying tires. Can you dig it? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so wild, <laughs> but that's all true. So, um, yeah, I read a lot. I still do. As I finished with those books, I read less, I guess. But if I come across anything vaguely Hollywood-related, vaguely 30s, 40s, 20s, yeah, I'll pounce on it. Okay. Well, this is a bit of a tongue twister, and I don't know if this is true or not, but part of the story involves reference to a club called Flynn's Flying Fuckers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm familiar with the expression... In like Flynn, referring to getting what you want with ease and quickness, but I had never heard mm. of Flynn's flying fuckers. <laughs> Was this a real thing? And if so, can you tell me about it? Yeah, well, in like Flynn had always had a much more sexual connotation for me. You know, it was like in like Flynn. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can dig it. You know, you use it, you've described pretty. Yeah. Yes, apparently Flynn's mania for sex and for having people participate in sex with him and crossed with the man's man and the need to have a coterie apparently resulted in this group of guys who were all into fucking you know and friends of Errol Flynn's and so he apparently had lapel badges you know they used to wear little stick pins in their lapels in those days and I've heard various reports on what that was i think one says it's like a cock and balls with wings on and another was just that it was fff 
or it was a cock and balls with wings on, and if you turn it over, it had FFS engraved on the back of it. So Flynn's Flying Fuckers was this group of people who would get together to have, I guess, orgies occasionally. And I think it was more like, um, I don't know if you've ever read anything about the kid stays in the picture. Bob Evans, Robert Evans, fascinating guy, in the 70s, ran Paramount. And he and... uh Jack Nicholson. You know, they judged guys. They were talking about a new bloke that they maybe was going to come into their circle or whatever, or they're having over dinner. They'd be like, yes, but does he fuck? You know, it was that kind <laughs> of, kind of, this is how they judge somebody. Like he's, you know, he's, a, he's one of us if he's out there getting pussy, you know. But um, I think it was similar <laughs> for the Flynn's flying fuckers. And I mean, the stories of them wrapping a film and all the grips and people not just the stars just banging away on soundstage you know and in fact one of the studios used to institute once a year a day i forget which day it was and what it was called but on that day anything went in the offices of so-and-so and they were like you know secretaries would be fair game anybody that moved was getting done in one way or another <laughs> can you believe it i mean that would have been in the 20s i think so, yeah, Flint's Flying Fuckers was apparently a real thing. And there was a very young star, which I could remember his name, who actually talks about it. He was quite young, but he was given honorary membership of Flint's Flying Fuckers. And, yeah, you've got to search hard for it, but you can find it. So it was a true thing. And I'd known about it for a long time because I'd, I'd read about it years and years and years ago. But it was serendipitous for me at that point because it allowed me to move on to the particular type of Oscar that crops up in the book, which you might have a question about, I guess, later on. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that's kind of apropos of the current question is, uh, hmm. I don't want to give away anything about its utilization per se, but yeah, talk about the, um, what was it called? The hard on Oscar. The hard on Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Carrying on from Flynn's Flying Fuckers, that the guy would actually go <laughs> to the trouble of making up lapel pins. And Flynn didn't ever really win an Oscar. I think he won one and they took it off him for some reason. So I could see Errol <laughs> Flynn being Errol Flynn going, well, fuck you guys, I'm going to make my own Oscar. But because he was always into showing his dick to people and all the rest of it, I could imagine that he would stick a hard-on on the front of it, both as an insult to the MPAA, the body that gives them out, but also as, you know, just part of his whole hypersexualized behavior. So in the story, he has created one of these, and it <laughs> makes its way into the story. And it's nicely tied in because it is then used as an antidote almost to trauma that's been experienced by two of the other characters, Jeffrey and Ali, at the hands of a very Hollywood patriarchal character. So, mm -hmm. Well, speaking of Hollywood, in your bio, there is a description of your book, High Life, which I started reading High Life, but the description of Colony of Horrors just kind of grabbed me, so I got sidetracked. Ah, but, so pleased uh, you did, yeah. 
the description of your book, High Life, that I read states that it's both a page-turning mystery and one of the most brutal critiques of Tinseltown ever committed to fiction. So I was curious to know, how does your depiction of Hollywood in High Life compare with its depiction in Colony of Horrors? And just as kind of a side note, was the title Colony of Horrors, is that kind of your opinion of Hollywood as a whole? Yeah, okay. So Colony of Horrors came up in a sentence. I usually have a working title, you know, which I normally always change. Um, and the working title for Colony was Wilderness, which is the name of one of the films referenced in the book. But I just wrote this sentence and it finished with, you know, Colony of Whores. You know, this place is like a colony of whores or something. And I just thought, oh, fuck, that's been given to me beautifully. It is partly my assessment of Hollywood, yeah. But when I say partly, it's because I know there's good work that goes on in Hollywood. And, you know, there are maverick directors breaking through. And so I don't want to bag it as a whole. But if you're talking about what, say, the rest of the world perceives as the entity Hollywood, yeah, then I think it's full of assholes, ill-mannered, you know, <laughs> pigs, venal cunts. I, yeah, I just think it's populated by a vast array of dead shits who don't have the first either iota of knowledge about how to interact with other human beings or simply don't care. I've had quite a few people contact me about my books over the years for making a film, you know. And um, the disregard with which they treat people is just staggering, you know. It's like, hey, man, okay, so I got this meeting with so-and-so and so-and-so and you know, blah, 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 and I'll get right back to you next week on it. Oh, wow, that's cool. Okay. Even if they say no, I'm going to hear something about it, right? Well, no, they just don't bother ringing back. You know, mm -hmm. three months later, when they get the taste that, oh, shit, somebody else might be interested in this, maybe I can flog it to them, they're back in touch. Oh, hey, Matt, what happened? Oh, yeah, we had some trouble in the company. You know, I. Uh, I couldn't send a fucking email that would have taken me 30 seconds. So it's at that level of just not treating people like human beings. And you can take that back to the casting couch and all the sexual exploitation and through to Weinstein, Miramax. And these are blatant examples, right, of these horrible abuses of power. And then you get to things like net points. You know, you get net points on a film. Well, if you take those, you probably never ever see a cent because they can account those out of existence. But for callow players of the game, they won't know this. And so they get shafted. The stories of people ruining other people's careers, supposedly, because of some petty vendetta. All of these things, you know, you only have to start reading a little and you're going to find yourself in conspiracy land and yeah, it just sort of operates as a law to itself. And in so many words, when the studios were in control and they had virtually, you know, their own private police and their own fixers and stuff, you know, like who killed Natalie Wood, you know, who killed William Desmond Dean Taylor or whatever. There's all of these deaths and murders and stuff which never got solved, all related to the Hollywood community. So... I'm sure there's some really nice people working in it too, but 
from my personal experience of it, it's the amount of bullshit that you get fed and the amount of manipulation that's indulged in for them to get what they want. And look, I have to tell you, I haven't met a lot, but many of the actors that I have met, yeah, they're like whores. You know, they, <laughs> they, they will, you know, at a certain level, they'll do anything for a role. And I mean, I'm not putting them down for that. I would, you know, I definitely would. But it all just goes to be part and parcel of this whole thing. And what we get sold outside California struck me really profoundly just the other day. Somebody I know posted a beautiful picture of Los Angeles at night, looking up Fairfax Avenue, I think. Okay, so it's this lovely archetypal Hollywood shot, you know, sunset, purple sky, palms, streaks of tail lights. <laughs> and I'm looking at it, I go, yeah, you know, if you looked at that picture, you would think Los Angeles is just beautiful. Look at this. And this is just one street. But I've been there to that street. It's a shithole. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's just hard to imagine a more ugly street. I only cite this to say, like, you look at the picture, you go, fuck, that place looks insane. The reality is very, very different, right? And I think that that's also the way we perceive Hollywood, too. And you don't have to be outside of it, maybe, to even see it that way. It looks very beautiful. It's, you know, rife with these wonderful stories of rags to riches and triumph over adversity and all of that. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of, you know, nefarious goings on. And particularly, I think there's a lot of using human beings just as material to chew up and spit out and to build edifices with or throw away when you just don't need them anymore. So, yeah. Well, kind of piggybacking off <laughs> a opinion of Los Angeles, I was listening to an interview you did on YouTube on a channel called Death Hippie. I think, where the host asked you if you were a pessimist or an optimist. And you answered that you were a pessimist, at least in the sense that you would focus on the negative possibilities if a situation was posed to you. But you clarified that it wasn't like a belief that the world was going to hell in a handbasket. So that interview was three years ago. What would your answer be to the same <laughs> question now? <laughs> Yeah, look, I can't even remember that. But it's probably a question I would have been asked. Yeah, well, I think I've grown some in a psychological sense around what it actually means to say you're a pessimist or an optimist. It's true that my brain has been patterned to generally look at the negative aspects of something before I catch myself and steer myself to the positive aspects, hopefully. you know. I don't really think, though, that I am a pessimist. I see great hope and great potential for human beings. And it was being brought home, I guess, through COVID. But particularly for me in Australia over the last few years, we had a series of dreadful floods and dreadful fires. And on top of COVID also, the way people pull together, communities pull together, you know, I think it's astonishing because you look at the news every day, and it's all about one human being killing another or a whole bunch of them killing another whole bunch. But really, at base level, human beings seem to want to help each other. 
a lot. And you, know, you see these wonderful comings together of people to help other people. They don't even know when we have these big, you know, peaks of adversity. You know, I also get this real positive feeling about human beings is that we all have some appreciation of beauty as well, whether it's art or the natural world. You know, there's, there's some lunkheads who are like, oh, it's fucking flower, you poofter, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I think the truth of it is that everybody has this appreciation, and it's different for different people, of beauty. And I think that's a hugely unifying um, characteristic. And a love of beauty and a sense of unification and a rush towards helping others makes me very positive about what we are as human beings. What the state of the world is now is a very different thing. If you ask me, am I optimistic about the next two, three years? I have to say no. I think it would be hard to put an optimistic spin on world events at the moment. Me personally, I'm optimistic about what human beings are, although there's some terribly bad ones, of course. <laughs> well, I know from what you said earlier that you enjoy film, enjoy movies, and you like to push the envelope in your own writing. Are you a fan of French extremism? I wish I could say I was. I don't even really know what it is. Is Manit's dog that and um, Gaspar No something that you're talking about? Like um, the one with the yeah, like, fire extinguisher thing where it'd be irreversible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah irreversible is one of those. Or Gaspar in a way, yeah. pretty much he's part of the movement. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And there's Blaise Moi, I think. Blaise Moi, Blaise Moi, kiss me. I think there's also part of that. It's about women who go and rape men. So apart from those two films, I don't really know it as a genre, French extremism, but knowing those two films and knowing roughly what Blémois is about, I'm a fan of it to the extent that, like some of the stuff that I've done, it throws light on a part of the world or part of society that doesn't usually have light thrown on it. You know, they're, they're mm. not, these characters or these events are usually not truthfully portrayed in movies so to that extent yeah i'm a fan of it i didn't really dig irreversible <laughs> i found that when they beat that guy up with a fire extinguisher it's just so horrific um <laughs> that and i mean for me you'd laugh right you read cows and like oh what are you talking about but i also just found that uh just a little bit slow but then i saw it maybe 20 years ago so i should re-watch that stuff and i'm going to look up french extremism you know i'd love to go live in paris or something and i'd love to learn french and all that sort of stuff you won a french award for i believe it was empty mile and i'm <laughs> i'm not even going to try and pronounce it i'll butcher the awards name yeah <laughs> the, uh, uh, okay i didn't win it i got selected for oh nominated so it, nominated it, Nominated. Okay. Yes, Sorry. that's right. Um, yeah. it's, it's the Grand Prix de Literature Policier, and it was uh, 2014, 2013. So what they do is, I think it's 
14 non-French writers and 14 French writers in the sort of police PI mystery genre. Okay. And each year they pick a winner from the non-French and a pick a winner from the French. So even to get into the shortlist was a real big deal because, you know, 14 sounds like a fair amount, but you know, if you count up all the non-French authors who published books in France that year, it's shit tons. Mm -hmm. So I was very pleased to be nominated for that. Yeah, it was great, but it sort of happened with a sort of a dampened bang. The, um, French publisher, Gallimard, or Gallimard, but Gallimard probably, very big noise in publishing over there, very old publishing house. They didn't even bother to tell me I'd been shortlisted. <laughs> I was just arguing with the editor one day, and he goes, oh, yeah, by the way, you got nominated for the prize. And I'm like, what prize? <laughs> Fucking hell. Anyway, <laughs> so, yeah, that was great. You know, that was sort of a, a vindication of Empty Mile because Empty Mile – came after High Life, and it's a very different book. It's nowhere near as graphic or horrific, but it's still very, very dark. And I think there was some sort of backlash that I hadn't just written High Life 2 kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And for some people, maybe it was a bit difficult to get their head around. So it was nice, you know, it was nice to get a bit of kudos from the French people. You say you'd love to live in Paris. What's the draw yeah. for you? I've been to Paris, but only for like two nights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it gets overwhelming very quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, I've spent a week there. I've always had this thing in me that I always thought I'd be able to have a good French accent for some reason or other. You know, I don't know why. And, um, <laughs> well, you pronounce and, and the and word always, pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, thanks. I've always wanted to be able to speak French. I didn't have the opportunity to learn it at the high school I went to, but you know, I always feel bad, you know, when I speak to somebody who can speak two or three or four languages, I feel like I've been lazy, you know, I'd love to learn to speak French. And I do try sometimes, but I haven't got very far with it. And I, the French culture and the French just sort of ethos, you know, the girls are so beautifully put together and they got that cool cigarette smoking thing and the food's fantastic. And just the history, you know, when I was in France, I was in Paris I was there and it was like, oh, how do you make it stop? You know, after a couple of days, it's like everywhere you look is so magnificently beautiful, so ancient, and so mm -hmm. interesting. It's like, oh, I just need to turn off for a little bit, you know, to process this stuff because there's so much of it. I just think it'd be a very cool place to live for a while, you know. And of course, mm -hmm. it was famous for the 20s world before with Hemingway and I don't know, everyone else hanging out in Paris. France. Yeah. No, I'd love to live there for a bit. Definitely. Yeah. That's where Gaspar Noé lives. <laughs> oh, yeah. I bet. I bet he's got a fantastic yeah. apartment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he do Irreversible, but he did it going forwards? He re-released Irreversible, which is all backwards, and uh -huh. he made a new version of it going forward recently. Oh, well, uh, I didn't know anyway, about that. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what is the life of Matthew Stokoe like outside of writing? Pretty boring, average. You know, I live in Australia now. I was in Sydney until about three years ago when we moved up to a place called Port Macquarie, which is a beach town, smack dab in the middle of the east coast of New South Wales. And it's beautiful, beautiful beaches, but it lacks, you know, the offerings of a big 
city like Sydney or LA or Houston or whatever, you know, New York. Mm. So it's a sort of shifting of gears. I still do a bit of a day job on the side, you know, for money. What else could I say about it? It's just living, you know, it's very, very hot here now. It's mm. sunny. So it's like this sort of drifting lotus eaters land, but it's actually quite a conservative town. It's quite a big town, but it's predominantly white and it's quite conservative. I'm actually up in a place called Mullumbimby at the moment near Byron Bay, mm. where my mum and my sister live. And that's a smaller town, but oh, it's so much more unconventional. It used to be a hippie stronghold. It's got kind of gentrified <laughs> now, but it's reached this kind of nice medium where it's not too wild and hippie and it's not too yuppie yet. And it's about 10 minutes drive to the coast. And so, yeah, I was walking around here yesterday thinking, hmm, you know, this is much more interesting. It's smaller, but it's more interesting. But at some point, I've got to get myself back to a big city, you know. Uh, <laughs> is there yeah. anybody listening to podcasts who put me up in a uh, flat in some lovely big city? I'll take it. You know, it's just <laughs> the input. It's just the stimulation. But mm. it's it's good, you know. There's pluses for both city and outside the city. So yeah. I'll be here for a bit. Yeah. What's Houston like? Oh, Houston? Uh, you know, I kind of stay relegated to the suburbs, but uh, mm -hmm. my wife and I, we used to uh, take in the uh, theater district a lot, the uh, cool. Alley Theater, the Houston Symphony. I've never been to the opera with her, but uh, I used to go to the opera until Hurricane Harvey came and flooded it, flooded the Wortham Center, which is where the opera performs. Oh. It's back open now, but I went to see La Traviata when they were operating oh. out of this convention center and it was the worst setup, you know, because opera, you just, oh. you, you've got to be in an opera house for an opera for the acoustics and the visuals and like, right. you just can't do it at a, yeah. a convention center. <laughs> it was horrible. So I got to go back someday. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, at least you can, you know, you not too far to go, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just got to get off my ass yeah. and do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Matthew, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Great to talk to you, too. I'm so looking forward to working my way through more of your podcasts. All you right. Very interesting subjects I see from your list. Appreciate that. Definitely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Oh, my Mexican readers. Cows has just been released in Mexico in paperback. Okay. In the Mexican Spanish dialect. So that's available for all you uh, lovely Mexican people through Ghetto Blanco Publishers, White Cat Publishers. Yeah. And um, that grew out of uh, this wonderful guy called Fernando liking the book so much in English that he actually translated it you know, for free. It was just like, nice. hey, I'd love to put this out in Mexico. And. I was like, yeah, but you know, you're going to need a publisher and translator. Like, I'll translate it and I'll find you a publisher. So off his own back, this wonderful boy just did this and then has just done it again in a revamped version of the beautiful cover as well. Yeah, so people in Mexico can read it in their native language, which I think is lovely. Nice. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Matthew, thank you again for joining me. Thanks very much. 
and thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer that has taken the joy of Christmas and injected it with supernatural horror. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Sometimes you and I forget what we're